0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear faithful, although it is still over a month away, I hope you do not begrudge me using a Thanksgiving dinner comparison to introduce my sermon. We are all familiar with the feeling of satisfaction that comes from devouring a delicious turkey dinner, complete with all the traditional sides, cranberry sauce, sweet potato pie, green beans, pumpkin pie, and stuffing which we may or may not have been doing to our stomachs for the past couple of hours. Grandma comes around with a fourth serving of all these delicious foods, and we hold up our hands, begging for mercy. We cannot, we protest, swallow another bite. Great, Canon, I hear you say, ever so cryptic with your sermon introductions, where are you going with this one? Well, if you hold your proverbial horses and direct your gentle attention to the gospel we just heard, I will tell you. In that gospel, our Lord teaches us by a parable, he teaches us the importance of being detached from things of this world in order to be receptive to the kingdom of heaven. It is a condition sine qua non, that means without which we cannot be. God the Father is the king who makes the marriage feast for his divine son, who wishes to espouse each and every soul in a perfect, beatifying, and unique way. And so he sends his messengers, prophets, angels, priests, to announce to all the possibility of salvation. However, because the souls of those who are called are filled with so many cares and attachments, they are unable to receive the call, and in their folly and ignorance, reject the salvation that they need. The one goes to his farm, the other to his merchandise, counting these things as more important than the nuptial feast and the union with their Savior that they have been created for. If our bellies are full of turkey, gravy, and stuffing, we can't fit anything else in them. If our hearts are full of material and worldly considerations attached to possessions, riches, pleasures, and things of this world, we won't have any room in them for what really matters, spiritual realities. We will be too bogged down in material realities to focus on the real goal of our life, union with God. That is why, dear faithful, it is useful for us to meditate from time to time upon the fifth precept of the Church. The precepts of the Church are duties that the Catholic Church requires of all the faithful. Also called the commandments of the Church, they are binding under pain of mortal sin, but the point is not to punish us. As the Catholic Church as the excuse me as the catechism explains the binding nature is meant to guarantee to the faithful the indispensable minimum in the spirit of prayer and moral effort in the growth of love of God and neighbor. The precepts are in no particular order to attend mass on Sundays and holy days of obligation to fast and abstain on the days appointed to go to confession at least once a year to receive the eucharistic uh, to receive the holy eucharist at Easter time to contribute to the support of the Church according to one's means, and also included sometimes to follow the laws of the Church regarding marriage. Returning to the Gospel, dear faithful, we see the importance of having our hearts freed from all earthly attachments in order to make room for the Kingdom of God in our hearts. And the commandments that God has given to us help us to remove the obstacles in the way of this goal. One of the precepts or commandments of the Church which helps us to detach our hearts from material possessions is that of supporting the Church according to our means. And this is the obligation of tithing. The Code of Canon Law states that the Church has an innate right to require from the Christian faithful those things which are necessary for the purposes proper to it. And again, the Christian faithful are obliged to assist with the needs of the church. So that the church has what is necessary for divine worship, for the works of the apostle and of charity, and for the decent support of the ministers. St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.18, the laborer is worthy of his hire." What then is tithing and how can we fulfill this grave obligation? First of all, we should contrast tithing with almsgiving, which is a related but a different work. Although it is good for us to consider the grave obligation of tithing, we should always look at the commandments and actions through the lens of virtue. This is what St. Thomas does in his division of the Summa, right? He doesn't divide it according to the commandments, but rather according to the virtues which perfect our action, render good actions more easy, more habitual. Not only should we do good actions, because we have to, but the good actions will make us happy and good. Serving God, you see, is its own reward. We should then look at the virtues that govern these actions in order to understand more of the nature and qualities of tithing and almsgiving. Tithing is usually determined as being the giving of the tenth of one's income or produce for the use of the church for its works and sustenance, serving the poor, maintaining its property, and its ministers. This portion of one-tenth comes from the Old Testament. If you remember, Abraham offered a tithe, that is to say a tenth, to the high priest Melchizedek after his victory in battle. Later, his grandson Jacob also promised a tenth of his goods to God. Finally, this rule of the tenth was enshrined in Mosaic law for all of the Hebrew people in order to provide for the Levites, the tribe dedicated to the cult of God, and for the other priests. Sometimes more was required and provided for. Tithing, then, constitutes a duty of the virtue of justice. Justice, as we know, is the virtue that prompts each one of us to render to each his due. When it is not rendered, there is an injustice, an imbalance in what should be. The ministers of God devote their time to the service of the Lord, instructing souls, pouring the graces of the Almighty upon them in the sacraments, and so they do not have their time to provide for their own necessities of life as their own lives are an oblation to God himself. This is also why it is a scandal when priests and ministers are not completely devoted to their holy vocation and take advantage of their position to enrich themselves. May God have mercy upon those Judases. Now, does this mean that every person who has their own income is required to donate exactly 10% of it to the church? No, this 10% number is a guideline A point that everyone should seek to reach, but obligations depend on capabilities. Each should seek to reach that 10% in terms of their charitable work, which is tithing to the church, to pro life, other good works included. But those who cannot make it happen because of financial difficulties or low income are not sinning, provided that they tithe to the best of their ability and their current capability. And let us remember we must give to the church of our treasure, yes but also of our time and of our talent. And if we are unable to do one of them, we should make up for it, or at least to do it as fully as we would like, we should make up for it by giving more of the other two, time, treasure, and talent. However, if God has blessed someone monetarily, for ultimately he is where all good things come from, there is a greater responsibility to tithe. 10% is perhaps a low number of what that person should use for their good works. A family does not need to live on a billion dollars a year. And in addition, the American government is more than willing to relieve you of whatever excess you may have, something you all sadly know. Having spoken about the obligation in justice to tithe, we can now briefly turn our attention to that of almsgiving. Almsgiving is a good deed, a deed that derives not from justice, but from the virtue of charity. It goes above and beyond the call of duty. It sacrifices what is not required, and that is where its perfection comes from. The motives for which almsgiving is done, or are done, excuse me, include that of penance. By sacrificing something material, we make reparation for our sins. As an act accompanying a request to the Almighty, so that we might be more favorably heard. Thanksgiving for a prayer answered or favor received or simply as a means of detaching ourselves from material goods and pleasing God. When we love someone, we don't need a reason to give them gifts. Our heart spontaneously pushes us to bestow gifts upon the beloved. Two virtues that are concerned here with generosity, but can also be applied to our manner of tithing, are those of munificence and generosity. The virtue of munificence, excuse me, refers to a firm habit to desire and do great works for the benefit of others. It is generally contrasted with the virtue of generosity, which is the firm disposition to sacrifice what one has for the good of others, even though what one has may be small and even though it may help only one beneficiary. Munificence, on the other hand, refers to sacrifices sacrifices of great amounts for the benefit of many. Both of these virtues require the necessary quality of sacrifice. If there's no sacrifice, there's no generosity or no munificence. And as our superior Monsignor Vach likes to remind us, if it doesn't hurt, it's not a sacrifice. Munificence requires great means. Let us think of all the great kings and nobles of the Middle Ages, as well as all the wealthy benefactors of the Church's great cathedrals and hospitals, orphanages and schools that have been built everywhere that she has spread her blessed influence. If we have not been given, given great means, let us not be discouraged, for God requires of us only the sacrifice of what we have. We can still be generous like the widow in the gospel who gave all she had, even though it was only a farthing. She did more, according to our blessed Lord, than great kings who did not sacrifice so much. If we have been given the means of doing great works and of practicing the virtue of munificence, let us remember the warning that our Lord gave to the rich man. Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Let us be mindful then, therefore, dear faithful, that all we have been given, in possessions, talents, skills, all of it, should serve our Lord and his kingdom so that one day we might be among the happy ones whom he calls on the last day. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.